I'm so glad that we are here. After last week, I had this sermon planned with our uh, Fresh Perspectives sermon series that we've been doing in Advent. We've been looking at kind of the classic texts that lead up to Christmas time. We did some stuff with the prophets. We did some stuff with the Magi. Um, and today, I want to finish up that series by looking at one of the classic Christmassy texts of all. It's the the Luke 2, 1 through 20 text. You know, it's basically the one where you've got the shepherds and Joseph and Mary coming into Bethlehem. And well, let me just read it to you because it's better than my interpretation. Um, if, if you want, yeah, why don't we stand just to like, you know, we're going to sit through a sermon. We'll just get that blood going a little bit more. And I will read it to you. It goes like this. Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Now Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Because he was of the house and family of David, and he went there in order to register with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to a firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and lied him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn or the guest house or the dwelling place. Now, in the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night, and an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all people. For today, in the city of David, there's been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly there appeared with the angel a whole multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace and goodwill among men, men who, with whom he is pleased. And when the angels had gone, Away from them and into heaven, the shepherds begin saying to one another, let's go straight to Bethlehem and let's see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. See, it works for Epiphany too, made known to us, revealed. Okay, anyway, I just caught that. So anyway, uh, so they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in a manger. And when they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told to them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told to them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things in her heart and pondered them. And the shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen just as it had been told to them. Lord, I pray over this familiar passage to many of us that you would give us fresh perspective that you would help us to unlearn some of the unhelpful things that we've picked up along the way, and that you would reinforce the central core of what it is you're trying to say to us. Above all, <laughs> definitely above all the things I have to say, would you help each of us to hear what you have to say? And I pray that it would be transformative for us. Amen. You may be seated. 
I was reminded by a friend uh, who has the gift of being in church a long time, but hearing things as a first timer, he just has this really great gift of like, what if a new person heard that? So sometimes we read scripture and I say things like, the word of the Lord, or, and then about three people say, thanks be to God, and the rest of us that are like, what are we supposed to say, and where does that come from? So anyway, I'll just like try to remind us of these little things. I can't remember where that came from. I know it's pretty old school. I know we do it in like Catholic churches and Anglican churches, but uh, sometimes people read the scripture. They say, the word of the Lord, and then you just say, thanks be to God. Let's try it. The word of the Lord. Oh, that's so cool. And it's like, it's participatory. We get to play along. Okay, so that's what that is. All right. These 20 verses of scripture that I just read are, I mean, they're absolutely packed with meaning. Like, even I have only been pastor of this church 13 years. I've preached this probably like 13 different ways. And I mean, there's all kinds of different emphases. You could preach whole sermons on one verse. You could take the whole thing together. You could get um, political, right? There's political overtones because Caesar Augustus, who was king at this time, he, know, he made himself known as the son of a God and the prince of peace. And of course, when Jesus is born, the angels say, hey, guess who this baby's gonna be? The son of God, prince of peace. And so you can do a whole thing with Jesus over Caesar, Jesus over world powers. Boom, that would be awesome. We've done that before. <laughs> um, or we could look at the perspective of the angels and their message, which is basically like when we're hearing the angels sing and declare things, the angels only speak what they're hearing God tell them to speak in the throne room in heaven. So basically, we could do a whole thing on the angels and like, hey, what is God? What is Yahweh saying? And that's a pretty cool way to go. Then there's the various responses to Jesus. So you got Herod and, and Caesar and these folks who represent empire, and they find out about this baby being born, and they're like, hmm, we don't know. Okay, but then you've got these magi from the east, pagan astrologers, and you've got shepherds who are ceremonially unclean, and, and they're like, huh, let's check this out. And they end up at least Im implicitly offering worship and, and adoration to this baby. So we can do this whole thing of like, well, here's the good news. Now, how do you respond? Um, that, that would be a pretty good sermon. I've done that one before. Okay. This evening, we're going to focus on one of the most popular and commonly misunderstood passages surrounding the nativity. Nativity is just a fancy word for the birth of uh, the nativity of Jesus. And all of this misunderstanding comes from one verse, and it happens to be verse 7 of Luke chapter 2. And here it is. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. It says a lot of translations or guest house or accommodations or depending on what translation you have. And from this one verse, we have a whole cultural narrative about how when Jesus was born, there was no room for him in the world. And we've constructed a mental model reinforced by, by Christmas movies and Christmas pageants about a mother who's in labor and comes to this little town and I, I need a place to stay in. We've got the innkeeper says, there's no room in the inn, right? Or, or sometimes you get the sympathetic innkeeper who's like, there's, I'm so sorry, there's no room here, but there's a quaint manger. And then you have like, and you, have, and you have white people surrounding this baby and animals licking them, and all of a sudden, that's the mental picture, and we do it every year, and somehow we have snow-capped evergreen trees in Bethlehem. It is beautiful, by the way. I really like this setup this year, but is, this, is that accurate? Where did this tradition come from? 
Where did we get the idea that Mary and Joseph were turned away and forced to spend the night in what looks like a medieval European stable surrounded again by white men? That's not the case in the actual Bethlehem story when we read it closely. And with the help of scholars like Kenneth Bailey, among others, this is where I want to focus our attention tonight, because I think there's some, there's some payoff for us really digging down into this verse. So sometimes when we read the Bible, I do this, you do this, um, we suspend common sense. Like, we read the Bible sometimes unlike any other book we read. Partly because it's so old, and it's so weird, and it's so foreign. I mean, it's in another, originally in another language from a different culture altogether, thousands of years old. I mean, the stories are just bizarre, right? And so sometimes we suspend common sense. But some things are timeless. And one of the things that is timeless is when you are married if you are, and you have a pregnant wife, and you're about ready to go somewhere, and you want to stay married, you make plans. You make plans. It's just what you do. It's like one of those Geico commercials or one of those. It's what you do. Okay. Uh, the text tells us that Joseph had traveled to his hometown of his ancestry to, to register for the census. Now, historians tell us and they're pretty much in agreement on this, that not everyone would have had to travel to the hometown of their, their ancestors, okay? That, that, that would just, I mean, just imagine that playing out. Like, no, like, everybody would have to be traveling everywhere at the same time. It's just weird. The people that had to travel to the hometown of their ancestors were the ones who owned a certain kind of property. So, A, they had to be a landowner, and they had to own a land that was not sellable. Because in ancient Israel, if you were part of a, uh, one of the 12 tribes and you had a part of that original land, you were not allowed to sell it for profit or for any reason. So Joseph likely is an heir to a piece of land from the line of Judah, which is David's line, in Bethlehem that he was unable to sell. So he was required to go to Bethlehem. Okay? Now, this is significant for two major reasons. The first one, not so much to my sermon, but I'm going to say it anyway because it's theological and it's important. The first one is that Jesus would legally be adopted by Joseph and therefore part of the line of David, who is from the tribe of Judah in Bethlehem. And Jesus, the Messiah, would then be linked to David and that line through this property-owning dad attached to David, and that is fulfilling the prophecy. So that's one piece of it. But more important for the fresh retelling of this story is the fact that Joseph would have known people in Bethlehem. It's his property that he goes to tend to, that he has to pay taxes on. I mean, he's got to know some peeps in Bethlehem. And he would have had relatives there, even if only distant relatives, cousins, uncles, something like, maybe second cousins. But he knows some people in Bethlehem. Now, remember how we suspend common sense because Bible stories and they, they're weird? Okay, let's just play this out common sense wise. Can we truly believe that Joseph would travel to a town of his ancestors with his fiance who's nine months pregnant and not have any kind of plan? There's nothing in the text that makes us believe that that's what Joseph did, right? So what would he have done? If you're like me, you're thinking, well, I don't don't really want to stay with family when my wife's pregnant, right? So we're going to get a hotel room, right? Now, here's the thing with hotels and inns. 
they would never have existed in Bethlehem. Like there's no historical evidence, there's no archeological evidence, and historians tell us that Bethlehem was just so small and inconsequential that no inn in a proper way of, of thinking of a, a commercial establishment that rents rooms out to travelers, they just wouldn't have survived in Bethlehem. It just wasn't a thing. And there's no VRBO either. Like there's not people that occasionally open up their, their houses for rent. What's interesting is that, if you just go down a road with me for a minute, in Greek, the word for inn, which is any kind of commercial dwelling, even a one-room inn, like if you had like an in-law suite that you're renting out as an inn, the word for that word in Greek is pan. It's, it's one word, but I'm gonna do the two parts. Pan, dokion. It's made up of two parts. The first word, pan, many of you already recognize, like, oh, that word means all, right? Like the pantheon is the, the temple to all the gods. It's in, in Rome, right? The Pantheon. Uh, or if you think of, um, I don't know, athletes out there, the Pan Am Games, right? Pan American Games. That's a, a, a sporting event with North America, Central America, and South America are all the participants. It's Pan Am, all the Americas together. Pan means all, okay? And then you've got the second part, which is this verb that means to receive. So a Panokion is an inn designed to receive all. That's what the word means. We receive all. You just come and you pay and everyone can stay. In the story of the Good Samaritan, you guys know that story, by the way? It's the, the man's beaten up and all these people pass by and the unlikely Samaritan who Jews and Samaritans didn't mix, the, the Samaritan picks up this person and you know where he takes him? Panokion. To a place that receives all. And he pays, remember, he, he pays for the man to stay there at the Panokion. So that's where that word is found, is in stories like the Good Samaritan. You know where it's not found? <laughs> in Luke chapter 2, verse 7, in our story. It's not found there. The word that's there is katalumati, katalumati, which, which carries the meaning of simply a place to stay. And it's most commonly translated in the ancient Near Eastern world as guest room as a guest room. So let me just bring this some more clarity now. Let's consider the standing cultural norms for Palestinian life, even today, by the way, but let's go back a couple thousand years. One of the highest cultural values was the practice of hospitality. You knew that because I say it all the time. Hospitality in the ancient world was the act of providing food, more than enough, by the way. Hospitality required that you overstuff your guests, that you make your guests feel bad for not being able to eat it all. Just like, you know, if you have a certain aunt or grandma who was, I, Corey, when I was dating Corey, her grandma was like that. She made, made this pork loin, and I was like, oh, I'm going to get in on this. I had a big helping. And she goes, oh, do you want more? And I was like, oh, no. She goes, you don't like it? You know, like, like, oh my gosh, she had me. So that's the kind of hospitality we're talking about. You had to put more than enough food out for your guest. Okay, so there's food, shelter, there is honor. So when someone comes to stay at your house, even a stranger, you would say, oh, this is my friend Evan and Meg, they're from distances and land, and you would introduce them to certain people in the community. So you honor your guest, and then you protect them. Okay, so this is where, uh, in the Sodom and Gomorrah story, for example, um, the, the people want to come and pull the guests out, and the man, I mean, it sounds 
horrible. That story is horrible. But um, you know, he's willing to offer people from his own household in exchange to protect the honor of the guests. Okay, so that's ancient hospitality. That's hardcore ancient hospitality. Now, add to the fact that Mary was pregnant, and a first century reader of this story could not even, it wouldn't even compute in their mind that there could be a scenario where Mary and Joseph would not have been taken into a house, like, without hesitation. Like, it just doesn't register. You've got this man and his wife, and he's already a known commodity in Bethlehem, and nobody's saying, you can't stay here. But it was a census year, and homes were likely full with traveling guests and family members. And if a guest room on the floor area was already reserved, then it would be equally inhospitable if I've got my guest room reserved, I get a knock at the door, Mary and Joseph are there, it would be very uncouth to say, sorry guests who I've already offered hospitality to, you have to leave. So what do I do with these guests? Uh, Zoe, why don't you put up the, the graphic there? This is a sketch of a typical ancient home that would be in Bethlehem. And what you'll see is in the middle box there, family living room. I know that we're Americans in the 21st century and most of us love our privacy. Um, but does anyone know any, any Sikh neighbors? Anyone have any Sikh neighbors? Oh, we, we lived in a neighborhood before we moved here. We had lots of Sikh neighbors. And in any one home, there would be three generations, sometimes four generations of people, all living in the same place, and I'd be like, I can't stand more than a couple of days of my own family, you know what I mean? But like, people live differently than we do, newsflash. And in the ancient world, people would live in one room. Mom, dad, brothers, sisters, they would sleep in one room. You're outside most of the day, but you sleep in one room. Uh, this is like, if you remember that parable that Jesus told about the story at midnight and the guy knocking on the door, one of the reasons that the friend doesn't get up, he's like, I don't want to wake up my family. It's not that he has to come from the master bedroom and down the hall and maybe tiptoe wake up his kids. He's like, he's got to step over his kids to get to the door, okay? Because they're all like sardines on the floor. And so sometimes you have this extra spot where you've got guests, okay? And, and that's the, the guest room or the back store, it might even just be like a pantry, and you, you, you put people in there. So Mary and Joseph come in, conceivably, there's somebody already in the pantry or the guest house, and so they're not kicking them out, they're saying, come stay in the main house, lay on the floor with us, well wait a minute, but Chris, it says there's no room for them in the guest house, I get that part, that tracks, but now he's in a manger, what's the deal with that? Okay, I wasn't gonna do this, but, Let's just, take, let's just take this, let's just take this baby Jesus. Sweet little baby Jesus. Okay, now, according to this schematic, what you can't see is that in the stable part, that is down three feet. <laughs> just like this, you're in the stable right now. <laughs> People back then didn't have attached garages, they had attached stables. And so they would come in from the outside, there would be a little walkway here, and the animals could come in for shelter, it's covered, and then you can close a door. So stable, enclosed, and you would have a manger or two or three right lining up here. Sometimes they were standalone mangers like this one. Sometimes archaeologists have found stone ones that are 
carved into the, the stone deck of the house or the clay deck of the house. So you've got your family here, guest room through that door, and you've just invited Mary and Joseph to come into the main room and to sleep there, and you're gonna put this new baby in a warm manger right here in the house. Oh, I must have done my stand goal. Um, <laughs> you can imagine, so now my wheels are turning and you start to do your research on like ancient New Eastern families and even modern Jewish families. Like you can almost imagine the, the neighborhood midwife from Bethlehem coming over and women just surrounding Mary with love. Joseph is like, you're out of here. Men, not allowed. Go smoke a pipe or something with the guys out back. Uh, you come in when we tell you it's ready. The women are just surrounding Mary, taking care of her, and this is not, a, there's no innkeeper. That's not even in the Bible. <laughs> what is all, why does all this matter? The point is this. The guests have claimed the guest room. Joseph and Mary are invited to stay with the rest of the family in the main room. Jesus is laid in a comfortable manger. And, and that's probably more accurate to the story. Mary and Joseph are not denied some fictitious inn that didn't even exist. They were welcomed, by, they were welcomed warmly, now this is important, by modest, small-town folks who practice simple and gracious hospitality. why is that an important detail? Like, why even, I mean, it's kind of fun to share new things that you're learning with people. I, I do get that there's a certain joy in that, but I really think that this preaches, and here's why. It is important the way a person does something is almost and sometimes more important than what a person does. Have you ever found that to be true? The way a person says something carries just as much weight as what they say. The way a person does something carries a lot of weight, um, not just what they do. And in the case of the nativity, consider that the God of the universe comes to earth. And when he comes to earth, he's encountering what's already there, and that is human culture. And if there's one thing that human culture does, is that we draw lines. I don't care what culture you come from, what time period you come from, everybody, for whatever reason, makes a pecking order, and we draw boundaries, and we say who's in, and we say who's out. We draw lines between ethnicities and genders, and maybe the firmest lines are the lines between wealth and poverty, celebrities and middle class, and the powerful and common citizens. These, are, these, these lines all get drawn up. It doesn't matter what culture you're from. Had the God of the universe been incarnate and arrived in Jerusalem in the temple, he would have been accessible to Jews in good standing. But anyone who was outside that system would have been left out, would not have had access to him. So, for example, the shepherds who were ceremonially unclean because of the type of work that they did, they couldn't have even listened to the angels to go to where Jesus was had he been born in the middle of the temple. They'd have been barred uh, at the door. Same with the magi. They would have never even made it into the gates 
uh, in the first place. Women could only go so far in the temple. So if God had decided to be born in a temple, it would have been a, a move of exclusion. It would have been great. Incarnation, we would still be probably celebrating God, but the way a person does something carries weight, doesn't it? Had God been born in the places of traditional power, there is always going to be insurmountable boundaries for vast numbers of people. But God, by the way he comes, is communicating, I've come for you all. In this story, it is the hospitality of common people in a modest home who remain nameless to us, by the way. Isn't that amazing? I'm preaching about this. These people that hosted the Lord in, in 2022, and I don't know their names, but they're getting run because they did a good thing to the Lord. And Jesus, in coming to a small town, being laid in a manger, Jesus is making himself accessible to all. Women are there. You know there's more than Mary. Nobody has babies by themselves in the ancient world. Even, even today, we all need a little bit of help. And there's people supporting this woman. Um, animals are there, right? And, and, and linking this, this, the beginning of redemption of creation with the creator, all of this coming together, it's, it, this is theologically packed. There's the shepherds. After the angels had announced the good news of the birth of Jesus, had the angels told the shepherds to go to the temple in Jerusalem or to the court of Herod, they'd be like, eh, I don't think we can get in there. We're not on the guest list. But when they said, hey, you're gonna find, here's the sign for you. This, that's literally what the angels say. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby laid in a manger, or actually wrapped with cloths, lying in a manger, right? That's just how shepherd babies are wrapped up. In humble cloths, sometimes lying in a manger. So, I mean, you guys, this is, this is about accessibility. Jesus spent his ministry breaking down barriers set up by people, and even his choice of birth parents, the location of his birth, the station of his birth on the social scale, it communicates an openness even to the least of us. And thanks be to God, right? Yeah, because the manger invites the lowly, but it doesn't disqualify the wealthy and the scholarly. Consider the highly educated and honorable magi. The only thing that might disqualify us is if we look down our noses at this scene as something beneath us or beneath our allegiance. That's the barrier, is our attitude. As the good news of the nativity story of Jesus, the creator and savior of all, is that he is accessible. He's come for you and for me and for every person you will ever meet. So as we enter into this new year, this new season, Let's come to him with our love and our adoration, our devotion, with our trust. And yeah, let's come to him with our fears because that doesn't disqualify us. Let's come with all we are because the only barrier between us and God is our, our attitude and our response to him. Thank you, Lord, for revealing yourself in such humble means and circumstances. It would have been fantastic enough had you just come to earth and be dwelt among us as a human, but the way you did it communicates even more of your love and your character. 
And I pray now for faith to be poured out in us, to respond, to say yes to you. That this wouldn't be just more interesting facts or a different way to look at the story, but that you would trigger in us a response of devotion.